and welcome to Rails to Nowhere. I'm Simon and as always I'm joined by my wonderful co-host Ella. Hello. Today, following on from our last episode, which seems an awfully long time ago, yes, where Ella was looking at the APT, we are now starting what has turned into a three-part series <laughs> looking at the relationship between British Rail and technology. This has ended up being quite a bit bigger of a research project than I expected. Um, And that's one of the reasons for the delay in getting this episode out to you. Rails to Nowhere has proved to be a bigger project than we expected. We're loving it. It's just more work than we had anticipated it would be. So this episode, we are looking at the first 12, 15 years of BR's history from 1948 through to about 1960, 1962. Um, next time we'll be looking at the 1960s through to the mid-late 1970s, and then finally, the last episode will look at sort of the late 70s through to 1994. Hmm. Good. First of all, I'd just like to take a moment to thank our wonderful patrons. Um, your contribution to the podcast is really appreciated by both of us. Supporting the Patreon allows you to support the running cost of the podcast and lets us focus on the research we're doing rather than worrying about if we can afford to continue the podcast or an archive visit that might involve a train ride or something like that. In return, we're giving you some behind-the-scenes access, an early listen to the podcast episodes, and a regular bonus episode, all starting for just £2 a month. If you'd like to support the podcast and get access to extra Rails to Nowhere content, then please do head over to patreon.com forward slash rails to nowhere yes i guess without further ado shall we have a look at br so i think i need to go a bit socratic method here and you're going to notice that a few of my upcoming episodes do that shall we ask the first question what is br so in 1947 the labor administration under clement attlee passed the transport act which for those who've listened to our first episode, basically achieved the things that Eric Geddes had been looking at doing with the Railway Act 1921. Mm. It unifies the big four rail companies into one, and it brings the railways and the canals and the road haulage industries all under the purview of the new British Transport Commission. Interestingly, this is the rare example of a point where London Underground and British Railways have been under the same management as they were Mm. both unified under the BTC, although separate wings of it, but they were under the same management. So this is where you get British Rail structured under the BTC. So you've got the British Transport Commission with the British Railways Executive, which runs British Railways underneath it. British Rail is then split into six regions, which some of them follow the regions of the Big Four, some are extra split off, so you've got a Scottish region, the Eastern region is split at this point into North East and just Eastern, and as we'll see later, that causes some problems for the organisation of BR, because certainly the Southern and Western regions are a little bit um, independent of yes. the rest of the organisation. They are quite isolated, and that's Partly due to geography and partly due to a continuing psychosis. Yes, um, certainly because a lot of the regional management tends to just be, Mm. as now, the management is just just transferred from the predecessor companies, so you end up with great Western managers in the Western region, at least initially. For now, that's enough of the structure of BR that we need to understand. It obviously gets more complicated later on as they add layers and layers of management with, like, sectorisation. One of the important things that it's going to be 
vital for us to remember throughout this miniseries is that BR was never meant to be the recipient of unlimited government money. It was always meant to break even. Mm. The Transport Act 1947 was designed to achieve what the Railway Act 1921 had failed to, which is to make the railways profitable. And that's important later on in this, and obviously we saw a little bit of that with the APT episode as well. Is this diametric opposition of should a railway be for the people or should it be for the business? Which, as we know, leads to some interesting conflict. So I think... The next thing we need to think about is what landscape, politically and economically, BR's operating in at this time. Because none of what happens at BR makes sense in a vacuum. And some, this is one of the issues I have with a lot of the historiography on railway history generally, is that it often treats the railways as an isolated thing. A lot of books don't want to get political. The problem is transport policy is... Inevitably yes, political. It's inherently political because it's being decided by people who are political in nature. So we have to think about what is going on around British Railway at this time. I sort of think now about what happens for BR overall. This will sort of set the tone for the overall miniseries. So basically three sort of broad political eras in this history of BR. So at the beginning you've got the era of rebuilding after the Second World War. Um, you've got what's known as the post-war consensus it's a little bit of a controversial idea now some historians are asking whether it actually existed but basically it's the idea that sort of from about 1948 through to at least the mid-60s both Labour and the Conservatives were broadly in support of nationalisation and national industries and the status quo that was established by the Attlee government in 1947-48 As I say, there's a little bit of historical debate about whether it exactly existed, but broadly for the first sort of 15 years of BR's life, there's little questioning from both sides of the House of Commons as to whether nationalised industries should be existing. And broadly, the governments are operating under the same presumptions of what the expectations of nationalised industry should be. And it's also... It comes partly from the fallout of the war. Exactly. There's been this massive shock to the economy and everyone's still kind of trying to get over it. Exactly. And it's very much, how do you deal with such a shock to your economy? Yes. And then, obviously, sort of from the late 50s through the 60s and into the mid-70s, you have um, the declining economic position and global position of Britain, which leads to some changes in how the government is viewing things. It leads to changes in government finance, Mm. and there are some economic shocks to the British economy. Notably, in the 70s, you have the winter of discontent and the three-day week, which causes Mm. problems for government finances and the British economy more generally. And then from 1977 onwards, we have the rise unquestionably. It's been coming in sort of in undertones through the 70s, but by 1977 with the election of Margaret Thatcher as... um, leader of the Conservative Party, 
you very much begin seeing neoliberalism and a diametric opposition mm. between the Labour and the Conservative Party that we'd more recognise yeah. in today's politics. You start to see the modernisation of politics as we know it. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. Like, we start seeing things like making government finance sense to the average person or attempting to make sense, whether that yeah. it does is another question. And yes, Margaret Thatcher's corner shop yes. economic model for Yes, and we're not here to get into an economic debate about who is right, who is wrong on this, but we are here to at least note that this was a thing and our opinions and our position on the economic will kind of come out as we're talking through all this. Because to understand what we are doing, you must understand the politics that govern it because because it is inherently a government organisation, whether you want to admit it or not. So the history of BR can be looked at as three eras in this time frame. Obviously they overlap, the boundaries are a bit fuzzy, but Mm. broadly you've got the early years of BR from 1948 when it was founded through to about 1960. These are characterised by the attempts to rebuild after the war. BR seeking to assess the viability of steam or possible replacement technologies. Notably you've got the modernisation plan in this era which kind of dies out in about 1960, 1962. That starts to fade as a priority. We start seeing things like the standard classes which... I will be doing something on those at some point, I think. Um, It will probably be in at least a year's time because (laughs) I need to learn German to do that episode. But but we start seeing that and then also things like your weird diesels, like the Class 20. And we'll definitely be talking about some of the issues of weird diesels a little bit later. Then you move through the 1960s and the 1970s in what I have labelled here as the RTC years. So the 1960s and 70s is characterised by BR seeking to compete against the roads and the airlines. So this is why I've called it the the RTC or Rail Technical Centre years because this is when you get BR coming up with some fantastic things to try and make the railways more modern. Modernity is a long established thing the railways have advertised themselves on. You just need to look at the Southern Railway or London Transport in the 1930s advertising their electric trains or even the advertising around the Coronation Scots or the Flying Scotsman. It's talking about how this is the tech. Yes, this is the thing. I mean, it's not just through technology Technology too is also through stylistic things of the time. You look at, say, the Pullman sets go between Victoria and Brighton, the Five Bell sets, the Coronation sets, even the um, A4 set. And I'm not just talking about the locomotives, but the whole train yeah. itself. They're all contemporary with their Art Deco and so yes. on. Even things like the 35 stock, it's all contemporary of its time. And as we see things, and even as time goes on, we see how things slowly change, design sensibilities change, and this all influences yes. and makes it very apparent, even with. With, you know your Mark One coach, it yep. changes again, and it changes after that, yep. but you can still see a through line through it as well. It's a very interesting. I always love looking back at old <coughs> railway adverts, and it's clear that in every era, the railways, when they come up with a new thing. So, I was at the London Transport Museum's library the other day looking at adverts in one of their documents for like the 1938 stock and the new signalling in the 30s. And it's all sort of look, this is the new boys' toy, and it's mm. the same. You see that sort of thing with the APT advertising again that look, this is the new toy that men and boys want to be interested in and excited in. But interestingly, of course, the 1960s and 70s are also characterised by the beaching cuts and Mm. cutbacks in spending. So 
they make for a very interesting era to look at because you've got both invention and development and cutbacks and mm. pervasion. Things that these things again are completely opposed to each other. Mm. RTC just is essentially a money sink. You want to get rid of money, give it to the RTC. They will find weird and wonderful ways to spend it. Yeah. And on the other hand, you're being told by your government, you may not spend this money. Exactly. And then the final era is from about 1977 through to 94. So this is what I've labelled the post-HST years. And it's very much an era defined by the failure of the APT project and the arrival on the scene of the HST. You have the question of, was the HST the train that saved BR? Which is an interesting question to ask. Mm. You have things like the Electra project or the Intercity 225 and the Intercity 250, the networkers and the emergence of second generation multiple units. But then you also have the characteristic elements of the Thatcher government and the major government's policies of businessification, of VR, sectorization, and ultimately the road towards privatization, which yeah. very much characterizes VR's attitude towards innovative and difficult projects in this era. What we see here as well is there's a lot of, like with the Electra and the NC250, trying to save the work that was done. Mm. And then you have the networker and the and the Generation 2 EMUs and DMUs. This, we have a thing and it's not good enough, but we need to make something quick as possible, often, based off of stuff that we kind of already know how it works. Yeah. And so throughout all of these periods, British Rail is occupying an interesting double role with relation mm. to technology. So you've got British Rail both as a consumer of technology and British Rail as a inventor yeah. itself. And throughout the three periods, BR's role as those two things varies significantly. So, so mm. in the first era, you're looking at BR very much being a consumer of technology. Yeah. It does a little bit of inventing, mostly with the standard class locomotives, but certainly the modernization mm. plant diesels are all external orders. The middle period from the 1960s through to 1970s, you're seeing BR are trying to be an innovator and trying to be an inventor mm. in itself and the latter years you're seeing it again just sort of deriving technology from other things improving on what's come before rather than creating brand new i'm hoping through these three episodes i will show why i feel that br was actually very badly placed to be an innovator mm. um, i don't think the innovation that it did was necessarily bad but i think br was not the organization that had the ability to do that innovation yes. for a number of reasons so before we move on, thinking of our lovely patrons, we have some bonus episodes planned. Yes, we it's have a slightly different episodes. structure for our bonus episodes and there's going to be a bulletin go out to the yes. patrons explaining the changes we're making to the bonus episodes. But one of those that we've got coming up is going to be looking at the historiography of all this because mm. I think it's quite interesting because how we view the modernization plan and the history of BR and its relationship with technological innovation is very interesting and we look at things like the modernization plan as the APT as a failure and things like the HST as some sort of technological marvel whereas more recent research is perhaps questioning that thesis and I think it's right to do so because actually I think just writing the APT and modernization plan off as failings is wrong. As we saw last time with Ella's episode, yes. the APT wasn't a total failure. Um, but also the HST maybe wasn't the grand success that some people like to claim it to be. So if you want to hear us talk about that, yeah. then please do head over to patreon.com 
patreon.com forward slash rails to nowhere where you can get access to that and other bonus content for as little as two pounds a month so i'm actually going to just go back in time just a little bit to just before 1948 so we can get a a sense of what br inherited in terms mm-hmm. of modern technology. So by modern technology, I guess I'm talking anything that's po- that's not a steam engine. I'm talking about diesel and electric traction. Yeah. So there'd been a little bit of work in the interwar years. You've got immediately springs to mind is obviously the GWR rail cars, the 10,001 and 10,000 on the LMS. And also the Southern. Yeah, and of course the Southern's electrification. The LNER had planned some small-scale electrifications, although as we talked about in our episode on the Railway Act 1921, the LNER was the poorer of the big four, so it, yes. it had had less resources to do electrifications. And notably, this is significantly behind some other European countries. You've obviously got Italy and Germany who've been experimenting with high-speed DMUs, so yep. stuff like the Flying Hamburger, yep. and Switzerland have electrified, I think it's about 70% of their yeah. network by 1948. Yes, and this is why we get things like the electric steam locomotives. <laughs> Obviously, it's important to note that there are some big political differences here. So Germany and Italy, obviously, some of what they're doing is for uh, authoritarian governments trying to um, show their skills and prowess. And obviously, with Switzerland being (coughs) neutral in the First World War and then the Second World War, it's able to invest in a different way to um, other European nations. But it's important to note that there had been stuff done. Britain's a little bit behind some other Hmm. European countries, but it's not necessarily way behind. No, it's doing all right. So now we move... (gasps) Past 1948, and we find ourselves with British Rail. And British Rail, well, it finds itself with a railway network in a very interesting state, and a slightly unique state for Europe, Mm. because it's been hit by the Second World War. Railway yards have obviously been bombed, and um, there's been damage to the network, and we need to rebuild. But it's not been as badly damaged as some other parts of Europe. So you look at Germany and France and the Netherlands in this era, and they have a real big impetus to rebuild and realign railways. Because yeah. when the collective armies of Europe have been marching through your railway network, it tends to leave it... it in yeah, it tends to leave it not really usable. And, um, and so when you're completely, completely rebuilding the entire, say, Paris to Lyon line, you might as well straighten out some yeah. of those corners. Whereas much of our network... Yeah. Yes, the Luftwaffe has rained bombs on some of it, but we've not had the entire yeah. Wehrmacht and invading American yeah. armies march through it march two or three through. times. And also the other thing with things like realignment, unlike in France and so on, where, you know, your house may have been flattened by mm. the Wehrmacht driving a panzer Egg. through it. Um, it oh. doesn't really matter if they realign the ha- your railway over what was once your house, because your house no longer exists. Exactly. When you're doing the much more fundamental rebuilding yeah. that a lot of European cities had to go through, it's much easier to do. So in Britain, you end up with BR having to make do and mend and not and not having the impetus to do yeah. huge rebuildings. So one of the first things BL does is the locomotive trials, where it's assessing steam traction for further use. This is not an unheard of idea. BR wanted to create a standardised design of loco. I mean, in mm. theory, the 
big four companies all kind of had standard-ish designs. Yeah. Certainly the LMS and the um, Great Western had had a more <coughs> standardised system yes. for their locos. Uh, LNER to an extent, um, Southern Region, not so sort much. they have been very focused yes. on electrics traction so steam was a bit more hodgepodge there but what you can see is also through ideas of designers kind of sticking with things that they know so therefore an a3 and a4 while they look very different when you boil them down to their fundamental constituent parts they're actually a gresley yeah it's a gresley locomotive everyone knows that gresley locomotives have a particular sound and the reason for that is because under the hood they're basically functioning exactly the same and the great western and the lms particularly were very good at having standard components for their locomotives Mm. so assuming it's not things like a boiler that are different (laughs) sizes but like screws and bolts would go in different locomotives and that's very much the idea behind the standardized class and it's also an idea that we see in Europe, um, Deutsche Reichsbahn in the 1920s have their Einsheit Dampflokomotive platform, which yes. is a standardised design loco for the German railways. Yep. Which then get expanded during the war into the Kriegslokomotiven, which are yep. they basically your standard locos made cheap. And the trials produced some interesting results, like, don't get me wrong, mm. it highlighted how regionalised cold suitability for the locomotives <coughs> was. So, for example, Great Western locomotives were well designed for the sort of hard coal mm. that you get from South Wales, yes. whereas LMS and LNER locos were very well suited to the more soft coal that you get in the north and the middle. Midlands. Which, by the way, is why Henry needs special Welsh coal. Mm. And they did result in decisions on a standardised design of steam locomotive. Mm. So you end up with the BR standard classes, which, as I've hinted at already, draw a lot of their heritage from the LMS and the GWR. Mm. Notably, the chief engineer of BR at this stage is an ex-LMS mm. manager, so therefore there's a bias I would present towards that. But equally, as we've already discussed, the LMS and GWR had already been a bit more of a standard design within their own companies, so that's why you get that. So yeah, so the trials were successful in establishing a more efficient loco design for BR, but there's a couple of big issues. One one, BR continues to build pre-nationalisation designs for quite some time after the trials, which reduces the efficiencies from the mm. standardisation. And also, BR would continue to build steam locomotives until 1960, when by 1955 it had decided that by the mid-1960s it was going to withdraw all of its steam traction. Mm. So you see some locomotives roll off of production with five years worth if of working life ahead of them. Essentially just roll off into museums or into the scrap. Yeah, I mean, certainly Evening Star was absolutely just (coughs) built to Mm. go into the National Railway Museum. Mm. It was completely just built to be the last steam locomotive built. And if it had entered service, as you've noted, it would be in service till the year 2000. Yeah, with a 40 to 50 year life expectancy, a steam locomotive rolling off of the production line in 1960 should have been operational until 2000-2010. That is an extraordinary idea. But when we look across at other countries, we find German railways and notably China railways operating steam locomotives into the 80s, 90s. Mm. I think the Chinese railways still operated frontline steam locomotives this millennium. I believe they mm. operated steam locomotives past 2000. There are lots of smaller railways in India that still operate mm. 
steam. Um, the but I'm thinking like, oh, you yeah. know that huge oh, one yeah. in the National Railway Museum, the Chinese railways, as yeah, far as I'm KF aware, were class. still operating those sorts of locomotives yeah. until this millennium. Mm. If we want to go on little narrow gauge stuff, then obviously oh, yeah. BR operated steam locomotives up until privatisation. Mm. Bonus episode on the Vale of Rheidol Railway will be coming at yes. some point. And so, yeah, by 1948, it's already apparent that diesel traction gonna be the way forward yeah. as is electric traction but the problem is you've still got quite a lot of traditionalists within br who mm. when confronted with little money for innovation and development and design of new stuff they are biased towards putting that little bit of money into yes. steam traction because steam traction is easy it's no electrification yeah. is expensive oil is expensive we're talking about a time after the second world war oil is expensive i wanted to go to turn into a world or two podcasts but obviously one of the big things the germans had just done for the last five years during the second world war was invade all the oil fields in russia because they wanted those resources and so you end up with a lot of oil fields being unavailable at this time yes. so oil is scarce and expensive and has been used up for the war still i don't believe the oil was discovered in iraq yet either um, no. Yeah, you don't have North Sea oil. A lot of the Middle Eastern oil is not yet discovered. So, yeah, so you're struggling. So oil's expensive. That means diesel's going to be expensive. Yes. So, yeah, so you get the traditionists pushing for, for maintenance of what's known. And we have an internal source of coal that's relatively cheap and plentiful. So you all expect that I'm going to talk about the modernization plan now. But yes. there is a period between the steam locomotive trials and the modernization plan that we just need to think about because it's important for understanding why the modernization plan comes about. So in the early 50s, you get some amount of development in diesel and electric traction. You get some new DMU units. So this is where you get the lightweight DMU. You get the Derby and the Swindon lightweight yeah. DMUs. In your 110s, your 126, 104s. Yeah, so it's anything that's a pre-Mark 1 design, yes. really. The ones which look weird. But old. Yeah, and you get some really weird rail buses in this era as well. Yeah. And notably, one remodernization plan design of Loco that really took off, which is the Class 08, mm. which is an LMS design. Yeah. It's the only locomotive to fill out its entire tops class yes. with 999 examples. To the point where I think it has two tops classes. Basically, the 09 is basically just the overspill yeah. from the 08. Probably, I'd argue, the most successful yeah. Train ever built. So there are in this period also a number of littler reports on modernization that advise electrification for suburban lines. Mm. You get progress on the Shenfield and Woodhead electrifications, which were both proposed by LNER mm. but are done under British Rail. And there are proposals for electrification of some suburban lines, yeah. such as in Glasgow. And it's why we get these weird electrification examples too, of it not being a 25 kilovolt AC 50 hertz system. Instead, it's, what, one and a half kilovolt DC? Yeah, because which, it's perpetuating yeah. the standards and designs of the pre-war yes. era. And it, it, it's perpetuating also designs that are also partly imported and stealing from abroad and kind of taking ideas and improving on them ourselves. Yeah. I mean, look at the, look at the southern region with its overhead electrics. Exactly. The problem in this period is you're still ending up with disjointed and confused activity. Yes. For example, the Derby lightweights and the Swindon lightweights can't work to work together. Yeah, One work. of the big examples is the um, Swindon Class 126 Intercity DMUs, which are a multi-working multi class all of their own. They can't work with any other loco or multiple unit at the time in 
passenger service, which mm. just adds complexity to the operation of the railway. So, out of this chaos of the early 1950s, in 1954, British Rail writes and then publishes in 1955 a report on modernization and re-equipment of British railways, uh, which is more commonly known as the Modernization Plan. The objective of the Modernization Plan is to achieve greater efficiency and profitability for the railway through modern technology and uniform equipment. It recommends the phasing out of steam technology and the introduction of power control for points and signals. This is where we start seeing the PSB, power signal box, beginning to be a thing that's being pushed proposal for equipment such as AWS across yep. the network so to improve safety as well and it proposes huge amounts of electrification for the west coast east coast and great western main lines mm. and that's meant to go all the way up to Scotland on the east yep. and west coast and all the way out to Cardiff on the great western and a range of suburban electrification yeah. basically it says that the only logical traction for suburban traffic is electric yep. and indeed for even for intercity traffic um, electric is preferable because it allows you to maintain the plus 100 mile an hour yes service you're already starting to see the car as a competitor yes. the first motorway in britain won't open till 1958 in the form of the preston bypass but obviously by 1954 that's well in the planning stage and even yeah. beginning construction around that time so not wanting to give too much credit to BR because there is strong evidence that they didn't understand the impact the roads were going to have on them but they're starting to see that maybe yeah they can look over to Europe and see in Germany with the autobahns oh look this has the potential to be a threat yeah. to us because people can now go door to door at at yeah. this point unrestricted speed yeah so we're going to discuss the historiography of BR in a bonus episode, but it's fair to say the modernization plan did not achieve a lot of its objectives and no. in fact actually ended up putting BR and the British Transport Commission into a worse financial position than they had been in 1954. Yeah. To that degree, the modernisation plan can be considered a direct cause of the beaching report because yeah. of its impact on the finances of British Rail. It fails to understand that the world is changing. Yes, that's one of its big core <laughs> things, is a failure to understand the world is changing. It also suffers from government doing yeah. things and government pressure as well. It's why we see things like the 20th and so on become so prolific at this time because there's a thought that we will still want lots of small locomotives yes. for small things rather than considering that maybe larger locomotives going yes. further are what we want. Then the problem is at this point that it's still not permitted for larger goods vehicles on yeah. the road to transport long distance yeah. which does limit BR's ability mm. to actually foresee containerization. Yeah. To give BR and the BTC yeah. credit at this point it's illegal yeah. essentially for a container lorry to exist this is a fundamental yeah. undermining of the plan is that it yeah. fails to predict changes yeah. in freight and it fails to consider that the way that things are being done is not necessarily the most efficient either yeah. You end up as well with quite a lot of political pressure on the British Transport Commission to buy British. And this also proves to be a problem. At this point, there's an idea that the point of the nationalised industries is to support each other. So the government puts a lot of pressure on British Rail to buy British-built locos so that they can support British steel and they can support yes. the National Coal Board. So what you end up with is rather than buying proven US and European diesel locomotive designs, or at least licensing, we end up 
with British Rail buying British designs, mm. being forced to buy lots of different little runs from British manufacturers because the government wants them to support as many British yes. manufacturers as they can. So you end up with lots of classes of the same kind. So there's several different Type 4s, several different Type 3s, yeah. as they're referred to at this era, because this is obviously pre-tops. This is pre-tops. So we've got power classes rather than classes of yes. locomotive. And that's also pulling it from the era of steam too, where you have yeah. power classes of steam. Yes, yeah, so this is why you get reference to the English electric Type 4 and the yes, brush Type the brush 4 type. and stuff. There are cases where you do get well, areas that we are going somewhat important uh, European designs. Notable example is the Great Western. The reason they went lot of diesel hydraulic stuff is because it was a proven technology in Germany. You know, they were actually very good locomotives. This is the big problem with the Western regions. They order all these hydraulics. They're a small run which is mostly what makes them unreliable yeah. and also makes them unusable really off the Western region because you can't maintain them outside the Western region. Now, had everyone ordered diesel hydraulics of this German pattern, Perhaps say, we'd be talking yeah. about the Heimlichs in a very different yeah. light. And so you end up with some quite good examples of so thinking of the 20s, the 37s, yeah. the 47s, these are all the yeah. locomotives that succeed from the modernization yes. plan. Important to note that even the successful classes have some significant teething issues mm. and it takes a while for them to start rolling off the production line because rather than using existing designs, we have to go out, design new locomotives yeah. and test them and prove them, find all the problems with them. And additionally, you end up with a lot of less successful and failed designs. So some of the classes of diesel locomotive end up being withdrawn before the steam engines that mm. they were meant to be replaced because they weren't reliable enough so that's a big issue and that's where a lot of money gets sunk you also end up with the government cutting back electrification which causes problems both because it means br has overordered electric locos to an extent yes but it also means br suddenly has to scramble for ordering more diesel locos yes, because you don't have what you thought would happen you also as we discussed earlier end up with british rail not understanding the world that's changing so f there's an attitude amongst br that modernization will be a silver bullet that will save the railway so to an extent, there's an idea that actually what they're doing and how they operate the railways doesn't necessarily need to change as long as you put a new modern traction on. But the problem is, of course, modernisation is not that silver bullet that no. saves these services. And you end up with a lot of these classes ending up unused. One of the big issues, of course, is the government in this era allows larger goods vehicles on the roads to start yep. hauling longer distance. So you start getting roads encroaching into the railway market share significantly. <laughs> and also they can offer it cheaper. Yeah, and they can offer it cheaper because, again, BR is still, as we touched on in the 1920s episode, affected by being required to carry anything and publish its rates, and it's quite expensive. You also end up with the BTC wasting money on unneeded line refreshes because wanting to show that modernisation is happening, it goes through and it refreshes some high-profile bits of railway mm. just to show that they're being yeah. modernised, even if actually the equipment's not mm. old enough to need replacing yeah. just yet and you also end up with them building goods yards and facilities mm. that are not suitable yes. for containerized traffic yeah, so the hump yard is the best example of that to an extent failings of the modernization plan are the fact that it happened at the right time because it happened when traffic flows were changing and when you really need to be changing but in a way it kind of happened just a little bit too early because it happened just before the btc would have been able mm. to 
look at what was going on and actually understand the changes that were going to be happening going forward. So I'm not saying that the modernisation plan was a success, but I think it's interesting to note that it's maybe not just complete ineptitude on BR's part. As with all these things, nothing is that simple. Yeah, so if we look at the successes of the modernisation plan, Mm. traditionally it's seen as a total failure, but as we say, you get some highly successful classes like the 37 and the 47 out of it. As I said, this is where you start getting power signalling and AWS. Things that really were not just about reliability, as you note here, but also about safety. Exactly. Having even a basic repetition of a signal aspect in a cab, even if it is just Mm. the signal is okay, clear, or there is danger ahead be prepared exactly is very important because drivers are human drivers are just as you know prone to accident and failure as you or i are driving down the motorway or cycling down the canal and falling in you also one of the big ones is that you see this as the point where 25 kilovolts overhead electrification becomes Mm. established as the default electrification system for the uk we were talking about how france and germany and the Mm. continent were rebuilding their eyes they're still even in this this time electrifying their main lines with older sort of yeah one and a half kilovolt dc yeah but in this era you see british rail adopt 25 kilovolts mm. as the standard electrification for the uk which remains the standard with some variations for high speed running and there's there's many reasons for that read gary keenor's book yeah. ocs4rail.com i believe is the website I'll get some to throw it in the show notes. And significantly, the electrification works that were carried out are actually quite successful. They're a little Mm. bit more expensive than they were expected to be, partially that's because of underestimations of how much it would cost. And I'm going to say something that friend of the show, Gareth Dennis, will hit his head on the table for this. Big problem with the electrification of the modernisation plan era was that it did not result in a rolling programme of electrification. And so you see that team be disbanded. As Gareth Dennis will often point out, the big problem with electrification is that actually you want to do like Scotland's doing now and move the team around because then you maintain the skills. It's what the Swiss did. And this is why later uh, electrifications on BR would end up being more expensive because you've got to reconfigure that team. Mm. So now we come to the bit that I like, which is the conclusion because it's where I just get to waffle at Ella as if I haven't already been doing that. And it's where I get to argue back and be very annoying. So the modernisation plan, like a lot of BR's history, is dependent on government and external factors. As Mm. we've already discussed, some of the problems of the government making decisions that impact BR, financial decisions, decisions on what licences it will give out for road transport, things like that. The outcome of World War II saw Britain pretty much bankrupted, and that left very little money available. So that's the main reason why we see the modernisation plan electrification programmes being cut back, why the maintenance of steam traction is considered for so long. There's also high inflation in the 1950s, which limits government spending, and BR is one of the big sufferers in that. There's also changes in what's going on with freight. So one of the big things is BR is in the early 50s is highly dependent on mineral traffic so stone coal iron ore and this basically collapses in the 1950s and and into the 60s which massively Mm. dents BR's finances basically mineral traffic is what was making money for the railways as we discussed in the episode on the 1920s GEDS and the Railway Act 1921 mineral traffic specifically coal is a massive income stream for the railways and the collapse of that really impacts BR's finances and you get the BTC failing to understand the importance of car transport and this is a running Mm. theme 
until the 1960s when the railways really start to see what the motorways are doing. So what was the consequence for all, of all this for BR? Well, as we discussed at the beginning, BR was meant to break even and preferably be profitable. Yeah. So the fact that the modernisation plan didn't solve that and in fact made it even worse was very much not a good thing mm. for the railways. And it undermined faith in the management of the railways and their ability to do financial management. Yeah. And while actually, as we've discussed, a lot of the problems maybe weren't actually the management's fault, the government put a lot of the blame on them. It's easy to scapegoat. And that would have an impact on projects such as the APT. It's one of the reasons mm. the APT project failed to get support from the general public and the government because, well, you cocked up the modernisation plan yep. so much that what's to expect that you're going to be able to yeah. manage this? And it's why other projects like in cab signaling the weekly wire and even the eventual goal of automating to an extent the driving task as london underground now have implemented in a lot of places it's why that never comes to yeah. fruition too the only and i do believe the only place on the british rail network where automatic operation where the train will quote drive itself yes there's someone at the front but the train will do the stopping and starting is the Tendlink core. Yeah, and even there it's not yeah. fully rolled out yet. And it's because they were not given the opportunity to look at this stuff because mm. Mm. there was this presupposition that... It would not yeah. go well. So to an extent, this would be mm. a direct cause of the beaching cuts, as I yeah. said earlier, because it's it's... Firstly, it's undermined the faith of the government in mm. the railway management. It's undermined the railway's economic position and finances. And it's it's kind of given the idea that the railways, maybe they can't compete with the roads. Yes. And perhaps they shouldn't be. Mm. And also it's this worry that the railways are looking increasingly dated. Yes. And next episode, we will be looking at the 1960s and 70s. And we'll see how all of this meant that in the next two decades, BR was in a very precarious position yeah. of playing catch up with roads and air traffic mm. and that the modernization plan really did not set it on a good footing and how that impacted on high-speed rail the apt and yeah. the high-speed train i don't want to step on ella's previous episodes toes too much so that will be doing my best to take a different angle look at the apt project so as the recording ticks Tick. over to an hour and 12 minutes <laughs> If you've been listening through to this point, thank you very much for listening yeah. to the episode. As I say, next time we're taking a look at how BR would attempt to face issues that we've just left it off with in the 1960s and through to about 1977. Yeah. So please do make sure that you're subscribed to the podcast to be notified when that episode comes out yeah. for our patron supporters. There's not likely to be a bonus episode between this episode and the next one. As I say, we are changing how we're doing the bonus episodes and we'll be putting yeah, out, we'll a, put out a full another on notice on that <coughs> on the patron feed yes. um, after this episode airs. But we are thinking more fireside style stuff. Yes. Because and as with the main episodes, we're looking at doing slightly less per year, but as an infill with the gap on the main episodes specifically. Yeah. And talking of our patrons, once again, a massive yes. thank you to yes. you 
all specifically our 10 pound supporter valkyrie lemons you are a star yes you're supporting Um, something that is very ridiculous supporting our podcast over on patreon as i say helps us keep the podcast going because it means that we don't have to worry about whether we can afford to host the podcast at the minute our patrons you are supporting the full cost of hosting our podbean site and our url and you're also helping us get to this recording. Yeah, so thank you very much for doing that. So if you would like to support the podcast, get access to our aforementioned bonus episodes, some yes. extra bonus blogs, and some other extra content, then do head over to patreon.com forward slash rails to nowhere. For as little as £2 a month, you can join our basic tier. Um, we have a couple of extra tiers where you get some extra perks, stuff. some extra behind-the-scenes stuff. I will say points to anyone who noticed the slightly different audio than maybe a little bit of echo and a bit of like you can hear me yes. in simon's mic and simon in my mic we are recording in a this is our first in-person recording so thank you for listening we've been simon and ella and goodbye. we'll see you again next time goodbye goodbye